You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. This is another edition of Weekend Conversations. Each week, I'll take a deeper dive into an article and interview that I shared during the week. And helping me with this is Mick, uh, the podcast co-producer. How's it going, Mick? Going well. How are you? All right. So uh, this week, we're again going to be talking about yesterday's Friday Forward, which was titled Memorializing Munger. Uh, Do you want to kick us off? Yes. This post is a fond farewell to Charlie Munger. Munger was, of course, the vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway. A lot of people probably know him as the guy next to Warren Buffett in a bunch of photos, but he leaves behind a towering legacy and made a profound impact on people who understood his impact and insights. So I wanted to start by asking you, because he obviously made a huge impression on you, what was your first experience learning about the work of Charlie Munger? Yeah, I'm not sure when I first learned about Munger. Like he's a quote machine, and I think a lot of his quotes are misattributed to Buffett or or vice versa. And I think I just started to hear a bunch of things that sounded really smart uh, and intelligent and well thought out. And then uh, obviously his name's not a household name. But then the more you get to know him and follow Berkshire, you you kind of see the the two of them um, together. Uh, so it probably for me was connecting a few dots uh, and hearing uh, a few quotes. But Munger was just one of the best thinkers of our time. And I think that's not a word we use very often, but there's you know a handful of people uh, I really respect, a lot of them I've had on the podcast, who just take concepts, make them easier for other people to understand, combine things, explain them in a way that helps you get smarter or better or build your capacity. And I think he just had an incredible uh, ability to do that. So it's funny, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of visibility into this like sphere of kind of public intellectual or like thought leadership until I started working with you. I think it was for me 2020 when I stumbled upon Shane Parrish's blog, Farnham Street, which is... Yeah almost kind of like a dedicated yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's like a dedicated almost like a museum to his charlie munger's insights and the extension of those insights i think that what really sticks out to me is that so many people who are really smart and who want to demonstrate themselves as being really smart use language that is very overwrought and like very flowery and fancy. They like to take a long time to get to what they're going to say. And Charlie Munger, it's just, this is it. This is the point. Get to it simply, succinctly. There's not enough of that today. I I agree. I I think, you know, when you're kind of intellectualizing something and you sound like a snob versus you're appealing to, I think, what do they say? You should write most things in an eighth grade reading level so that people can understand. I think the other thing, and, and you and I have seen a lot of this, but Charlie Munger seemed to be one of these people who did what he said and said what he did. And the way he he lived his life and the thing that he talked about, I was reading something from his kids talking about how he would have these, and his dad did it with him, these kind of ethical decision-making discussions at the dinner table about the guy who made a huge mistake but came to them so you don't fire him because you want people to tell you about mistakes. And, you know, we find out a lot that people who stand on a, uh, on a high horse or a soapbox aren't actually doing the things that they were saying. And I, and I think from everything that I've read, he lived a pretty genuine life. 
and congruence with the types of things he talked about. It's funny because one of the things I think a lot of, especially younger people knew him for is he toured late in his life. He got into this kind of an odd fixation with, he donated a bunch of money to, I think it was the University of Michigan. And he wanted it to use it to build this massive windowless dorm. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand why people got annoyed about it and were basically were saying who would want to live here. But in a weird way, I kind of respected that he basically just took this idea and this completely simple vision for what a dormitory could be and just decided to try it to see what would happen. Yeah. It, it, look, a lot of things you know, sound crazy, but he wanted to do it. He owned it. He paid for it. And he'd probably be the first person to tell you if it was a, a horrible outcome or, or it didn't work or otherwise. I think he'd probably be very honest about it. He doesn't seem like someone who fell victim to cognitive dissonance from everything I have seen about him. Definitely. So you worked hard in this piece to narrow it down to a small number of your favorite mongerisms. And I think it came to five. I want to dig into each one a little bit. Sure. First, behavior and incentives. Why do you love one of Munger's most widely shared quotes? Show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Yeah. And I realized I was misquoting that for like the last 10 years where I, mean, I like the other version where it was show me the incentive and I'll tell you the behavior, uh, which is kind of equally. What I always thought interesting about it was you could reverse it too, right? Show me the outcome and I'll tell you the incentive. So in building organizations and working with different teams, uh, nonprofits, otherwise, watching human behavior, I have just seen this to be continually true. And then when you find you're just not getting a result you want, or you're getting something very different than you anticipated and you dig into it, it's a matter of uh, implicit or explicit incentives. You know, we talk about incentives um, from a financial standpoint a lot, but I think there's a lot of social and cultural incentives where um, when you don't follow them, you're not, you know, rewarded. And so it causes a lot of the same behavior thing. And, you know, I've, I've seen this a lot, particularly in the years over sales. And I was I was talking to a friend who's uh, the number two at a massive public company, um, you know, overseeing a huge sales organization. And I said, you know, we found over time, like when we're getting the wrong outcome from sales, like the commission system is rewarding the wrong thing and we tweak it and it totally changes the behavior. And we've seen this just time and time again. So it just feels like this constant game of whack-a-mole. And he was like, that's like half my job is figuring out what we screwed up about the compensation system last year or last quarter and sort of tweaking it. And it shows that. And and I, I think you know, this is a very human nature thing and we constantly overlook it. There was a story, uh, I think, that was told in the context of this about Munger where early on in, in FedEx, they were having like real problem getting the planes loaded up uh, overnight on on the night shift. Um, you know, they, they, he just, Fred Smith was like, did not want to incentivize like hourly work because he just felt like I'm just going to get more hours. And the goal, the goal is to get this plane loaded out by 3 a.m. And let's say it was like a, a 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift. So they basically changed the incentive system and they said, look, you get paid for the entire shift and you can go home when the planes are loaded and boom, all the planes are suddenly like loaded on time. <laughs> not a surprise. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation topic. One of the things that he dug into for 
his kind of opus that you mentioned in the piece, The Psychology of Human Misjudgment, is that he was talking about the idea of behavior and incentives. And in a lot of cases, when someone is trying to reduce organizational inefficiency or employee inefficiency, they will focus on things like control mechanisms and you know monitoring what their people are doing, putting yeah. a stricture on what they can do, rather than looking at the things of how to align the incentives and how to make it so that the outcome that the company needs to achieve is beneficial and is directly tied to an outcome that the person wants to achieve. And that can be advancement opportunities, that can be um, financial incentives, compensation incentives. But it's interesting that it's sort of the idea that it doesn't have to be zero-sum and that there are ways to structure incentives that can be additive for both the company and the person within it. Yeah, I mean, that was a great example, right? They kind of got excited about you know, filling up the plane and they got to go home early. I think there's a famous example too about, I can't remember if it was New Course Deal or Bethlehem Steel or one of them where they just, each shift started marking the number of of turns that they got through or number of pieces of steel that they did during their cycle. And so one day, um, they came in and there was a four, you know, there was, what's that? Well, they got through four, you know, so that, that group did five and the productivity of the plant doubled within like a month when people started doing this and it wasn't financial, but that's that sort of social belonging incentive, competitive incentive. Like it just, it got people a little more fired up and, and engaged. You mentioned in the piece that one of the things you've mentioned that in subpar outcomes that you've had you've often noticed that you, the problem is rooted in some sort of misalignment and incentives. Do you have any particularly applicable examples of that where that's happened to you? Yeah, they're mostly in business. And honestly, over the years, it's mostly been in in sales. And as we had new product and services and we tried to guess how we were going to sell them and we had different systems, we found that you know there was inherently, you know you would sell a ton of volume and then have... Uh, a lot of churn <laughs> um, because inherently you were, you were doing volume. So, you know, we had one thing um, over time where uh, incentives were paid out over a long time because it was a recurring revenue thing. And people, uh, we were finding that that was creating a lack of motivation because they had a lot of money coming to them, but they didn't see it today. So then we changed it to sort of front loaded it. And then what? Ha- as soon as we did that, we had a lot more motivation. But what did we have? We have super high turnover <laughs> after that initial period. So I've always found, I think, sales to be a little bit of, of whack-a-mole with that. And it's a constant tweak uh, in terms of, of what you're doing. I think it's also figuring out, again, where you people want to focus their time. One of the biggest ones I have seen is that leaders who incentivize hours get teams working like crazy and celebrating hero hours. Leaders that focus on outcomes and seem to have you know people working less and getting a better result. So that's, again, even where the financial incentive is the same. It gets into this, what are you socially uh, rewarding? And what are you celebrating? Um, vacations, we've seen this too, right? If, if a leader constantly tells their whole team um, that they're available on every vacation, then, then they follow that behavior. And, and rather than saying, incentivizing them to really take some time off, which is something we did in the organization where we paid people. We said, look, we're so serious about you really taking time off that we're going to pay you not to communicate with everyone and take a, a week off from work. And I, I actually felt in that case that 
people assumed that the social incentive was a different way. So by making the financial incentive really explicit, I thought it made it pretty clear what we value. Because a lot of times people say one thing, but then the money does another thing. In this case, the money did the thing that we wanted them to do. And that's so classic alignment too. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. I want to double click on something that you mentioned a couple minutes ago. Basically the idea of you have a certain sales incentive and that leads to a certain type of a prioritization of closing a certain type of deal. Always, 100% yeah. of times. And, and so do you think... Because part of figuring out the right incentive is understanding the unexpected consequences or unintended consequences. Do you think the solution to that is blending different incentives in a way that balances out from over-indexing toward an unwind outcome? Or do you think it's just accepting that you're going to have to change the incentive as a certain behavior becomes over-indexed? I think it's a little bit of both. What I don't think I hear a lot of leaders do is sort of play a thought experiment with it. Okay, so here's our new system. What do we expect would be some of the intended behaviors? What would bad behaviors under this look like? How will we see it? How will we know that? And then sort of monitor that, right? I think they inherently know that in the back of their head, but I don't think there's enough explicit thing. And it's a great, I think, scenario exercises are good thought exercises and leadership exercises. So if, if, if we think we have a problem based on this, what is it going to look like? How do we measure that? And when do we want to intervene? But I have it's constantly, uh, it seems to be a measure of, of tweaking. I like the idea of thinking about it in the context of 
if we have this incentive and it drives this outcome, if the incentive were to prompt people to pursue that one outcome all the time, because that's what they're incentivized to do, what would the second order effects of that be? Yeah, that's that'd be a great exercise. Then, then what would happen, right? We, so we would expect bigger sales, huge ramp up, overwhelm, you know, onboarding team, but then higher churn, more unpredictability. Uh, yeah, I think it's always it's a great exercise, kind of a future exercise to say, okay, if this happens, then what happens, or what are the three possible consequences um, that would come out of that? Yeah, and actually, this is something tying back to a previous episode that we've talked about the idea of high growth companies that are incentivized to grow at any costs and now are finding difficulty building the muscle required to pivot to being profitable and a radically different incentive structure is required to make that happen. Yeah. They don't even know the right incentives around profit because every incentive has been about growth for years and and all the muscles about growth. And so it's also super hard to, turn that around, right? When you have a salesperson who's just been encouraged to close everything they can close and now you're asking them to close a lot less and be discernible and possibly make less commission, that's not going to sit super well with them. (laughs) So again, back to what is the win-win or how does that that look a little different? So moving on to the next mongerism is the idea of happiness and expectations. And Munger was a firm believer that your happiness is entirely dependent on your expectations. How do you live that principle or keep that front of mind in your own life? Yeah, I think there's a there's a, a professional version and a personal version. I think in the professional version, what I have learned is you should keep expectations as low as possible reasonably possible for your stakeholders to the point where they should accept them <laughs> so that you could you could beat them. And again, that could be different if you're 100% shareholder, if you have investors or otherwise. But there is no point in throwing out super high um, expectations. In fact, we had a couple of years where like our goal was 40% and we hit 33% and everyone felt like they lost, right? And, and we sat around and we're like, look, we got to fix this. This doesn't make any sense. People shouldn't feel like growing 33% is, is a loss. And so I, I think we've learned to to lower expectations. And I think there's kind of, you can hope for the best, but plan, you know, for the worst. Obviously, at some point, someone else won't be excited about <laughs> a certain number. So figure out where the baseline is so that you're better off beating it. Because if you say uh, 12 and it's, it's 10, and if you had said nine and it was 10, the same result has a totally different impact on, usually financial, but but more feeling like you did a good job or otherwise. Like no one wants to feel like they didn't meet expectations. So what's the right balance in your mind? Because you, you know, you have a pretty good mindset about these types of things. I think you're a pretty good sort of staying steady, not getting too high or low type of person. But also, you know, it wouldn't surprise anyone to hear that you're also really driven and you're ambitious yeah. and you're really, really focused on always improving and pushing yourself. So how do you calibrate that, especially a professional context like you were just talking about, but also I'd love to hear on the personal side as well. On the personal side, I think 
I've actually learned to lower expectations a little bit for myself, <laughs> not on the quality side, but but I've written about this on just kind of trying not to get too stuck on the achievement wheel and understand why I'm doing it and why it's important rather than it just being the next milestone to be the next milestone. Um, so I've been asking myself that a lot of that question a lot more when I go to set out the goals at the beginning of the year. I also think there's a difference between you know, having high standards that you expect of other people and super high expectations. I think standards, right, standards are are something that you kind of lay out and agree to. And then an expectation, you know, could be something that's layered on top of that about what you're going to do, right? So but the standard is we always tell the truth. My expectation is that, that you know, we grow the business 100% or, you know, something like that. So I think they can be uh, a little bit different. But I've I've tried to also, again, it sounds wrong, but lower my expectations of, of other people uh, in that same context. We're not, not below the standard where I'm comfortable or it meets my value, but if I just assume that everything's going to go right all the time or expect the best or otherwise, then I'm just going to be disappointed. I, I mean, I learned this, I think I really learned this best, like, when I got into the stock market at a very young age and watching earnings and seeing that it almost didn't matter what the company reported a huge like gain or a huge loss it mattered like how that was relative to what all of the analysts had put out at the expectations and so the ones that had the huge expectations always you know set themselves up for a fall and the ones who had a mild one and great example of this week i you know last week nvidia the hot ai stock uh, of of the moment which is 270% this year in a $1.2 trillion market cap, which as amazing as you think the opportunity, it's five years ahead of itself by any objective measure that I've seen. So NVIDIA blows away earnings, the highest earnings like it's ever had, raises its guidance, and the stock's down like 8% in the last week because the expectations are so high that almost whatever they do, they can't meet them. That's not a great place to be. This actually relates pretty closely to something. I think that the market example that you just used is a really pertinent one to Charlie Munger because obviously he and Buffett are investors. And Buffett, rather famously, and I would imagine Munger had an influence on this thinking too, would begin all of his letters to shareholders basically saying, we had a good year, we may not even have this type of year next year, and was always, (laughs) always managing expectations. And I think that to some degree, that was because, and this I think relates to almost values and finding people who value what you value. He was aware that they would attract people who had that same long game approach to investing. Like the day traders of the world who are looking for a stock that's going to jump. Yeah, that's not his cup of tea. Yeah. And it's being so clear about what you will deliver and it's being so clear about what you value and attracting people who value those same things as you. Yeah, and and right, the high expectation crowd that's always promising and over delivering. So one stock that I decided to sell, it's in this super hot market and it's a space that I think is going to blow up and the CEO is always talking about all these deals and every quarter they miss their earnings. And I just, I watch this guy and I speak and I'm like, I don't trust this guy as far as I can throw him. Like, (laughs) you know, based on the track record here and it, and they've super struggled and they announced we might run out of cash, 
you know, after being kind of like the hottest company, the hottest sector. And I, I, I could have spotted that by someone who constantly was putting out really high expectations and, and falling below them. I, I would be very careful about hiring, working with, getting associated, investing uh, in people with that pathology because well, your expectations tend to be a little bit too what you plan for. And so they're very likely to get caught off guard, right? If Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett exceed expectations, there's probably no negative repercussions of that. If you plan to go 30% and you staffed your whole organization around that and you invested a ton of cash and you grow five, there's probably some real serious repercussions to that beyond just disappointing people. And so one other thing before we move from the expectations and happiness topic is something you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, which is the idea of having high standards versus having high expectations. And I think that that's almost like the distinction one would draw between need and want and figuring yeah. out what are the priorities you absolutely have to have, which are your standards. And your expectations are the things that you want which you can set with the understanding that you can sometimes get what you want, but not all of the time and not even necessarily always when you want most. Yeah, I think that's super well said. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so I'd be curious, what kind of standards, how do you separate standards and expectations in your own life? Standards to me fall kind of a little bit under the, the value. I, a lot of times our expectations aren't communicated, <laughs> right? Their expectations are what we expect. I think when you talk about sort of a standard, it's mutually agreed upon, right? Like expect almost has the meaning of I don't entirely think it's going to happen, right? So if I'm, I, I know it sounds like we're splitting hairs and people might define these things differently, but if I'm a business and we have a standard that we get back to every customer in 24 hours, right? Like that is the standard 100% of the time I expect it. Now I'm screwing it up as using that world, but, but I, it should be done without any deviation. 
if you're saying I have an expectation that we're going to return calls uh, in 24 hours, it just feels like there's a little wiggle room not to do that. Although I couldn't say that without the word expectation. So maybe I'm contradicting myself. Who knows? But um, that just feels a little bit different to me. Well, it's, I think that it's, it's easy to word, use the word expect or expectation, but it's it's like a guarantee or it's something that a person can count on. If something is a standard, that 24-hour response standard, then someone not only would expect it to happen, but they yeah. would count on it happening and they could bank on it happening. And, it should be, and it's something you probably control, right? An expectation might have a little bit of an element of, look, the airlines expect that their flights will leave on time, right? But it'd be very hard to have a standard that that happens every time when you have a weather dependency. Um, I think that's a good example of it. Yeah, and I I think that Munger and Buffett both really demonstrated an awareness that there is so much that is out of our control. There is so much that can change. And I think that both of them were always very, have always been effective at evaluating the things that we can count on to remain steady. And yeah. calibrating to that rather than calibrating to the best case scenario or the lofty expectations. 100%. And it's, I think it's shown in the way that they live too. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett likes McDonald's and drinks, <laughs> drinks Coke. I, I'm, I'm sure that Munger and Buffett both had very, very nice homes, but they were not people who were... Buffett does not have a super nice home. I think he lives in like the home he bought when he was 20-something years old. It's just not important to him. In yeah. some ways, like he has low expectations of need, you know, so he can only exceed them, which is good because someone said recently, like happiness is different version of happiness, but when you're uh, wants divided by your needs, right? <laughs> and so if your needs are always going up, you almost can't catch up with the numerator. Yeah, and so it it relates actually back to that example of the college dorm without the windows is I think that the way that the story was framed was, you know, this billionaire wants kids to live in windowless boxes. (laughs) But Munger, you know, he he had such a core appreciation for the necessities and for simplicity that it wasn't like a typical a guy living in a mansion like putting people into cubicles. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it looks like they may have abandoned it. But again, I think he probably had a very specific reason why he was doing it. Yeah. So next one on the list is Munger once wrote a piece, I think it was for CNBC, where he talked about how he decided to work with Warren Buffett and go into business with him. And he shared three rules for career satisfaction, which are really relevant to anyone, I think. Only work with people you enjoy. Don't work for anyone you don't respect and admire. And don't sell something you wouldn't buy yourself. What sticks out to you about those rules? I mean, first, I they're sort of, they're rules about authenticity, right? And I think... Uh, happiness in the end, I always like the Gandhi goes, what you think, what you say, and what you do are all aligned, right? And so if you want to live a sort of authentic life, those are really good rules. You know, people ask me a lot over the years about an opportunity. Should I do this company or that company? Or in my 20s, it was all about the idea, right? And and by the time I got in my 40s, it was 100% about the people. You know, the idea in itself, I I remember a friend uh, convincing us to work with this can't-lose company, hottest thing, hottest segment. The company was an absolute shit show, and it went out of business. Um, So, 
you're going to be in the trenches with people. You're going to have to work with people. The, the people are much more interesting to me at this point than the idea. And again, I think if you if you don't respect someone, you don't admire them, you don't want to work with them, you are basically compromising your values on a daily basis. And you know, I know someone who who made that decision, you know, for a while um, because it was a really good opportunity, uh, and it got them into a really big hole that they had to dig out of. Um, and I, I think a lot of similar stories there. If you ask people, was it was it worth it? You know, to stay somewhere where where you didn't respect and admire the people, or maybe you hated them because the opportunity was good, the prestige was good, was the money good? Those end up in <laughs> those situations end up very precarious. Uh, again, not to get political, but how many of Trump's cabinet or appointees are now bankrupt uh, from legal fees um, from you know really wanting their moment in the in the spotlight? I, I think that's a a really great example of like they're. They, a lot of them, they're financially ruined and their careers are probably over for something that they they really didn't believe in. And I think that actually this is a good career application of the mongerism we just talked about, about happiness and expectations. If you think of the extreme example of these three rules, that actually, I think, is not too dissimilar from how a lot of people, when they're younger and idealistic think about the career they're going to have they're they're thinking i'm going to change i'm going to work for a world changing company i'm going to be part of like a technological revolution i'm going to work with the smartest people in the world and we're going to be like a yeah. family and all that and if you have those types of criteria that's really hard to find but there's a lot of people in the world that you can enjoy working with. And there's a lot of people who, regardless of even if they're not like a Fortune 50 executive, there's a lot of leaders in the world who are undeniably worthy of respect and admiration. And even if you don't make a life-changing, game-changing, cutting-edge product, there's still something that you could be proud to produce and to sell. It just has to be something that you yourself find useful. Yeah, and you got to look in the mirror every day, right? Uh, we get one of these lives, and and I think if you're going to go to work every day with people you don't enjoy, with people you don't respect, selling something you don't believe in, I have to believe that crushes some small piece of your soul every day until there's not not a lot left, or else you learn to some sort of self-hate <laughs> or something like that to kind of get through that. But that's that's not a recipe for a long life. Yeah, and I think that these rules really could be a litmus test for people. And I think a lot of people, if they find themselves dissatisfied or unhappy in their role, there's probably a good chance that they are in violation of one of these rules. So as you said, this is about values alignment. And I'm curious, how have you basically assess values alignment in the people that you work with, especially if, say, it's someone you don't know super well. Yeah, and look, you're going to disagree with people. People have bad days, um, but I'm clear on my core values, and I talk a lot about, about over 2,000 people take the core values course, um, that when you can clearly articulate your core values, it is the single best decision-making rubric that you can have. Um, and so I, I'm very in tune to whether people I choose to be in long-term relationships with either personally or professionally or familially or, or otherwise are, are aligned to values and not. And not that you don't have situation, but I'm very conscious where that misalignment is. And if I have a choice, I'm not going to stay in a situation that's constantly 
uh, misalignment because it's going to make me feel bad. Like I just, I know that when your values are crossed, it doesn't feel good. So one of my values is long-term orientation, right? I, I like focusing on big things in the future and what's going to work in the long run. And, and so, you know, being around people who are trying to make a quick buck or run the bus through the the hole before someone figures out, you know, how to, how to close it. Like, it's just, it's just not my DNA. Um, maybe I wish it was sometimes, but cause I'm always like, well, how's that going to work in six months? And then I, well, who cares? I'm going to make so much money in six months that it doesn't matter. So probably why, I never worked on Wall Street, but um, you know, I, I just gravitate towards people who more want to focus on that longer-term orientation. So moving on to the next Mungerism, and this one was sort of less than an individual quote, but a broader appreciation of his understanding of human behavior and of human foibles, basically. And uh, he obviously, as you link to in the piece, he wrote this big, or he gave this talk, this magnum opus, The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. And one of the things that jumps out to me from that is a quote, I sought good judgment mostly by collecting instances of bad judgment than pondering ways to avoid such outcomes. What do you think about that way of looking at judgment? Yeah, I think this aligns a lot with Morgan Housel, Ray Dalio, sort of like, there's so many things that are are repeatable and, um, you know, Morgan Nauzel's latest book, same as always, like, f- and a lot of it is the psychology, not the act, like things change, but people's reactions don't change. You know, I have looked at manias and crazes and followed very carefully from, you know, tulips to internet stocks to Bitcoin to other stuff and watching kind of these behaviors and, and learning from it. And I really, I've avoided ever getting caught up in those things because I feel like I kind of, I've seen that movie and also, you know, you seem really smart until those things um, stop working, but we should a hundred percent learn from the mistakes from others. And they're all there and they're in the history books. And, you know, the, the danger really is, and, and I'm sure Munger, you know, <laughs> if you could, is when people are like, you know, it's different this time, but usually the person telling you it's different this time wasn't there for the last um, crisis. So, uh, yeah, I think we can learn a lot what not to do. And usually it's getting caught up in some fervor of, of groupthink in which we start to doubt our own critical thinking and reflexes because we see a whole bunch of people doing something or believing something. And, and we start to wonder, you know, what, what we're doing wrong. Um, I, I had this sort of my seminal moment in the affiliate industry was going to this original affiliate summit during the days. And I talked about this in performance partnership, feeling like it was like this absolute like casino gambling fraud sort of thing. And just starting to doubt myself being like, everyone's making easy money. They're not. And, and I had strong beliefs on why this wasn't really good. And, and until I met this guy, Pat Grady, who sort of validated everything that I was feeling like I, I can see how you'd be like, well, I just, if I can't beat them, why don't I join them? <laughs> um, but everything I saw and everything I I sort of you know intuited uh, was correct. But I began to doubt myself. Like maybe I'm the only one who doesn't get it. That was definitely how I felt about the NFT craze. I had that exact <laughs> same feeling where you're describing where it's you think if everyone else believes in this, at what point am I the stupid one for not thinking the same way? This actually works as a really nice transition to another element of this psychology of human misjudgment, which is 
the doubt avoidance tendency. And I think that an interesting relationship in what you're describing is that often we feel doubt in contrary views when we're presented with a bunch of people who are completely avoidant of doubt in their own <laughs> perspective. Yeah. What do you think? Because you're you're a questioner, you're a you like to think critically about a lot of groupthink issues. How do you fight this doubt avoidance tendency? Yeah, I I, I always say I hold very strong opinions loosely held. <laughs> Um, because I, I tend to be passionate about things. I tend to do work on things. I always, I had Derek Sivers on this podcast and I remember him saying it stuck with me four years later. My favorite thing in the world is to change my mind. And there's some major issues that I have changed my mind on, uh, in the last year and otherwise by reading different perspectives, talking to people. Look, sometimes I think one of the things I've learned is those people who have absolute certainty, I don't totally dismiss what they're saying but i don't i don't feel like i have to take it all or nothing right sometimes actually one tenth of something they say is super helpful and in my mind i throw out the other 90 percent. i think one of the problems in society is people throw out a hundred percent automatically if they don't buy any of the arguments and sometimes people have you know nine really dumb things to say and one really smart things to say that can help alter your your opinion. So I totally try to keep an open mind. And it's actually a Friday for it. I'm working on my head on trying to kind of lay it out on just a pretty major shift I've had over the last year from from both things that I've seen and things that I've I've learned. And and particularly if you're not willing to change your opinion when the circumstances change, then you're kind of bordering on fanaticism. I might actually connect this to a book that I know you love, uh, Patrick Lencioni's The Five Temptations of a CEO, because ultimately the doubt avoidance tendency ties to one of those temptations, which is prioritizing certainty over clarity. And the idea that if you feel certain about something, you probably are not seeing it clearly. Yeah. And if you're 100% certain, then you're likely to get blindsided in some way. I've seen people who are like a hundred percent, they're not a hundred, they seem a hundred percent, they're 90% certain, but they're resolute and confident enough to try and think that they understand the potential implications, even if they're, they're low probability, that is different than there's no way this thing could be wrong, (laughs) right? Versus like, I'm going to make the call. And I think this is the best possible decision. But this has been three or four other Fridays. The winds of fate can blow your way or not blow your way. You could do something on a Tuesday that is historically brilliant, and it's absolutely idiotic on a Friday. Yeah, I I think it's one of the things, and as a pretty prudent and savvy investor, I would imagine that Charlie Munger understood probability really well. But I think one of the challenges a lot of people have is that they think of a probability of a situation of either it will happen or it won't happen. And if it went a certain way, that means it was always going to go that way. And that means that you can expect it to go that way in the future too. Yeah, and one of the things he didn't write about that's one of my favorite principles, I think, is that sometimes like you just got lucky. You made the wrong decision. If you went back and look at the data at the time, you made the wrong decision. Perfect example, you decided to drive home drunk and you don't get arrested. That's not the right decision because it worked out well. That's the wrong decision. So, I, I think a lot of people are fooled by getting lucky. And, and sometimes if you debrief and you go back and you say, 
that was no, that was like the wrong. If you had to do it nine times out of 10, you got the one out of 10. <laughs> don't, don't do it that way the next nine. Yeah. And it's actually, if you do something reckless like that and you think, well, this didn't go badly the last five times I did it, why would it happen now? You should be thinking about it the opposite way. You're probably due for it to go in the opposite direction. Yeah, and back to that certainty, just to nail this point one one more time, I think there's confidence, but but what you should knew, know going into it is like, we are going to do this, and I really believe it's going to work out, but I also, I'm clear about what happens if it doesn't work out, and what are the consequences, and I'm willing to, to live with them. I think the blindness comes in when you just can't possibly assume that it might not work, and you're not ready for what happens with that. That's when people get into trouble. So the quote of the week this week is a long one. And so I thought instead we could leave off on the last category of Mungerism in the piece, which is that Charlie Munger once advised Buffett to live his life backwards. What do you find resonant about that advice? Yeah, begin with the end in mind. As I said in the Friday Forward, I think a lot of people focus on legacy. Uh, I think it was Brian Bro, uh, our mutual friend, who who said at one point, "Look, you you live your life, and other people determine your legacy. You don't get to determine your legacy." So it's really helpful. Um, I did some light eulogy exercises before, but I was in a forum offsite a few weeks ago, and we each had to write full eulogies uh, for our funeral and and be the person that was reading it and read them to each other. And that was a tough (laughs) thing to do. But it really puts into perspective, how do you want people to remember you? What do you want to be known for? Again, really thinking about the the long term and the end. And then am I doing those things? Am I being the type of person where this is the eulogy that would be given as at my funeral? So I, I... it was resonant because I, I just did an exercise that related to that. And, and again, I've done light ones. This was a heavier one and it's pretty powerful. Well, that seems like a good note to leave off on then. Do you want to take us out? Sure. Thanks everyone for joining us again for the latest episode of Weekly Conversations. If you want to check out the post we discussed today, go to robertglazer.substack.com or you can Google Friday Ford and that'll get you there as well and look for the post titled Memorializing Munger. Also look out for future edition of Weekend Conversations. We'll be in your feed on Saturday mornings. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on the podcast app that you're using so you'll know about new episodes. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. 
Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.